You can kick your fancy ales, you can drink them by the flagon, but the only food for the brave and true comes from the Green Dragon. Welcome to the Green Dragon Podcast, your weekly or even more podcast about the Lord of the Rings strategy battle game and also the Hobbit strategy battle game because I haven't decided which name to call it. I am your host, Jeremy, and with me I have the wonderful Travis. Hello. The almost as wonderful Danny. I object to that. I'm much more wonderful than Travis. And Mason, who I haven't decided how wonderful he is just yet. Hi. (laughs) Today we have two main topics. The first is... A bit about some sad stories that have happened to us in Wargaming, mainly to Mason, and we'll go into that very shortly. But after that, we've got a lively discussion on non-metallic metals and the merits of this painting technique. Now, we have Mason on because he has what we believe is an interesting and sad story. I'm going to fill this episode with sad music throughout, laments, uh, dirges, all kinds of really sad ones to get there. Please make sure you've got a box of tissues nearby. Um, in my hand now, I have a baby who will probably provide some crying throughout. That is to add atmosphere, not just because I'm trying to rock him to sleep. Case in point. Now, Mason, can you start from basically the start of your story, your original army? Okay, so my first army was dwarves. I'm sad already. They have such a hard life, the dwarves. Mm. Yeah. Um, they were... I've always had a passion for collecting dwarves. Um, I started off with Durin and all the main sort of Balin, Dane, Martin. Yeah, those guys. I really liked the Khazad Guards, not just for their OP status. No, no, no. The, the miniatures are really nice. Yeah. Well. No yeah. one ever likes models for their OP status. It's always <laughs> the models, especially things like Mouth of Saurons and uh, <laughs> Aladan and Elrohirs and... <laughs> Go on, sorry. Uh, yeah, so... I had my basic army and then I started to expand as I went through the year of 2012 into 13. And then as the new dwarves came out, I thought I'd quickly round off my Durin's Folk army list. Had my first game with them on a Friday night mm-hmm. with Jack. So uh, a very happy moment, of course. So yes, cue the uplifting chorus going Finally here. brought Durin to the table, had a great game, took photos of them. The last photos that will ever have been taken of them. Oh. Met my girlfriend Lexi at South Yarra Station, I think I was going to. Mm-hmm. Got in a taxi, went to a burger shop, got to the counter of the burger shop and realised I was not carrying my case anymore. Ah, this was the case with the dwarves that you were playing yes. before. And all my objective markers and pretty much everything else that was themed to my dwarves. Mm. Well, let's just have a moment's silence for Mason's Dwarves. I can actually put that in. (laughs) And I think I will. Okay, so... So that's basically what happens. Normally, the shock jocks here is to ask you how you feel, but we know that that that's going to be a terrible moment. I can imagine the listeners here putting themselves in that position and and feeling a disaster there. So what I want to know now is, first of all, uh, what you did afterwards, so not so much what you felt, but but the actions you took, and then how others perhaps responded as well to that would an interesting part. Mm. Well, I might add that it was about eight or nine hundred points worth of dwarves. So it was literally every dwarf I owned in my case. Uh, so that was pretty harsh. It wasn't like I had half my army gone and I could just get them back. So every single one. 
all of them, except obviously the Erebor dwarves, which are, oh, okay. I had just yep. started, so I hadn't painted them or anything. Um, yeah, so when we got into the shop, we realized the case was gone, and I quickly ran back out into the taxi rank where they dropped us off. There was no taxis there, meaning it was long gone. Uh, I asked Lexi if she had a receipt or any sort of record that we'd been in the taxi, and he didn't put his meter on, so there was no nothing to track down. So this is like Murphy's Law in full effect at the moment exactly. going on here. No trace. The taxi disappears off into the void. Yeah. I didn't read the number plate. I normally look at the taxi driver's name or even what they look like. Just, I don't have anything. Just no mm. reason. Just look at them. But I didn't on this one case. And so we quickly rang the taxi company. They said if you didn't put the meter on any sort of pager that they would send out to all the taxi drivers, no one would respond because if they did, they would get fired for not putting the meter on. Meaning, whoever found the case still probably has the case and I don't think they will ever be found unless someone puts it on Gumtree or eBay or something, which I have looked every week for. But nothing shows up. Yeah, it's a, a highly likely that someone who doesn't know what they are has picked them yeah. up at some point and, and who knows what's happened to Gave them. Gave them to their five-month-old child to suck on. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll, they'll make a mess of a five-year-old, five-month-old child, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking pointy end of a vault warden. Ooh, yeah, not, not good for kids. True. So if you're the person that's picked them up, who just happens to be listening to this, please don't feed them to your five-month-old yes. kids. That would hurt us both. I could just, um, yeah, I just picture them just sitting in some some person's house being played with by like a toddler or something as toys. Or worse, yeah, a knowledgeable gamer who has taken advantage of the situation to its fullest. Because this is not, we have heard of other cases of this happening. Yeah, and that's, I'm not sure how you guys, I'll, I'll stop the story for the moment and ask what mm. you think about this. Is that a good or a bad thing? If someone actually tried to get them back to you, for example, and then couldn't, so then decided to use them, would that be a, a positive or a negative? I would say positive because then for a few reasons. One, if it's not in our sort of community, then they're getting use and they are doing their purpose and someone's looking after them. Or if they are around this area, they could somehow show up at some random tournament and I could say, hey, they're mine, <laughs> and I could get them back. Yeah, I, for me, it's, it's a case of um, intention. If they've taken it going score mm. and with no intention of giving it back, I'd say, oh, I want to deck you. Yeah. But if it's on sort of like a, I've tried to get this back, but there's no ID in this, what the hell, I'll, I'll give him a spin. Mm-hmm. then it's on a different footing. And, yeah, it does come down to intention of, yeah, what the person, did they keep it just course? They, you know, they're like, hey, this is worth a lot of money. Let's just keep it, you know. Mm-hmm. If they appear on eBay listed with their values and exactly what they are, that could be a bit worrying because then someone's obviously like, this is worth a lot of money. I won't even try and track them down. But if they're just as like five bucks for toy soldiers, you know, mm-hmm. you might go, hey, well, that's all right. Yeah, and you quickly dra- grab them. I know this is a, a bit a bittersweet and, and probably a little bit hard for Mason, but what would we recommend for people out there about mainly transporting their models? Any recommendations has come from this? I'd like to just throw this in here. One thing that I have been telling players for years and years and years is put your name on your rule books and put your name on your cases. Mm. I have, uh, even to the extent of um, 
just under the, the underside of your case, spray painting it white and painting your phone number, address, and your details. Because Australia is one of those countries where, you know, two out of three times, someone will give something back if they've found it. Usually people will try it. I think that's across the world, to be honest. I think most people would want to give it back. And, mm. and unfortunately, we can't always do that. Lost property bins are full. Well, I remember one instance um, a few years back at Campbell after I think it was conflict or a war torn or, or something. It was after a tournament at Campbell. I was about to drive home and I had my rule books in my mm-hmm. one ring bookcase. I had it on the top of my car, hopped in the car and drove off. Not realizing that the books were still on the top of my <laughs> oh. car, and uh, fortunately, a good Samaritan picked it up in uh, on the off the middle of Burke Road. Yep, wow. and uh, busy called, road for those who don't know. Yeah, I uh, I he called me up and said, "Oh, I think I've got some books of yours." And I went, "Oh, really? What, what What do you mean?" And he said he had the books. I went, "Oh, crap, they're mine." And I asked him where he lived, and he still had them on him. And I drove out to Narry Warren, which at the time was actually fairly close to me. Well, Mm, that's well, very lucky handy. there and yeah. I went and picked up the books so yeah put your name and number on everything and I've got a mm. similar situation as well where I used to go to my local gaming club and this happened quite a few times actually I think I'd learn and I'd go home and I'd have no books and I'd look, <laughs> look through my bag where are my books and I'd come back to the club next week and, and just go to ask sort of everyone and then Travis would open up his bag pull out four or five books <laughs> pull out the photocopies made of those books and return them to me. And this happened more than once. So I learned very quickly that I need to put my name on the books for people, good Samaritans like Travis, to not uh, misplace them or anything like that. Yeah, I was always. 14 at the time. Cut me some slack. <laughs> you could operate a photocopier though. That was impressive. <laughs> okay, so we've got that name things. Um, I actually named the bottom of my models as well whenever I'm going to take them out. So to a tournament or to a painting competition. Because I've had a situation where I entered a, a single model in a, a painting competition where they would post it to another location. And it took me over nine months to get that model back, even though I put my name on the bottom yeah, of it. Had, I've, I've been walking through a, the Melbourne Games Workshop store and just saw my model that I'd entered to yeah. Golden Demon you know, six months before and they hadn't returned. And they've got lot. <laughs> yeah, that was unfortunate. Well. Okay, so Mason now, next part of the story, hopefully a little more uplifting. We want to know, was that the end of Dwarves for you? Well, yeah, so I... Yeah, rang the taxi company, no one came back. I went to the police station a week later, no one, nothing. So then I thought, well, it's either I quit the hobby for good and put it all behind me and cry in my bedroom alone, or I start a new one. <laughs> and obviously I started a new one. So straight away I got my favourite dwarves back. Just got Durin back straight away, got Khazagards back, a few Iron Guards, who, a few people in the community helped me out, naming... You, Jeremy, helped me out actually. But there's lots of Jeremy's in the community. That okay. could be anyone. Yeah. Should totally. I name last names or no? No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah. So I'll just keep it there. Yeah. Um, now I, I want to know. After that, after painting an entire dwarf army, why did you choose to go back to dwarves instead of a different one? I, I think if that happened to me, I would have chosen probably not elves because yeah, elves. I would but, go polar opposites. So yeah, more yeah. goblins. Or some cavalry or something different. I, I find it really interesting you went straight back to the dwarves. I think it was because I just have like such a passion for dwarves. So I just wanted them back. So I just thought I'd start fresh and get them all back. You could have tried hobbits. They're like dwarves. They're short as well. <laughs> yeah, but they're not as good. <laughs> and I don't think the community would have been able to give as many hobbits either. I think. Yeah, smart. I believe our hobbit stocks were fairly low at the time. Yeah, the nice thing about that is the dwarves are still dwarves. not infinitely hard to get. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so just before I lost them all, I had started to try out a thing called non-metallic metal, 
And I wasn't very good, so these dwarves that I lost, although they were my best painted at the time, they allowed me to sort of practice almost, meaning that when I got my new dwarves, I could actually properly paint them from start to finish. Yeah, so using the opportunity to try new techniques and improve on the army. Yeah. And so, yeah, when I started fresh, I was able to know what color scheme I was going to do without trying to practice and screw them up and then start again. I could just go straight into it. And there was also a tournament coming up at the end of this year, it's already been, called Wartorn. And that that almost gave me like a goal to get them all done by. And I had a little tick-off sheet with my army list and what I needed to get back and finish in time. And as the weeks went past, I ticked them all off and... It was about a a week before. I think I got the last guy that I had lost and painted them and had them all ready for Warton again. That's a bit more organized than most of us. Yeah, that's impressive. A week before. And props to your new painted dwarves too. (laughs) They were the only army I played at the tournament that my nine ring race didn't manage to win against. So, uh, Travis, this episode isn't about you. I know, but I'm making it about me, (laughs) Fair enough. And they look really good than all your new painted dwarves. So yeah, you. I really actually nice. want to go into that. We'll go into the non-metallic metal a bit later in the yeah. episode. But the, the improvement, because we, we were lucky enough that we got to follow the progress on our Facebook page, the Australian Scene one, and you regularly post photos up. Um, can you tell us a bit about improving your technique and, and did it take you less time or more time? I think it took me less time because I had obviously practiced on my older dwarves that I lost to know sort of a recipe of how I was going to do it. I'd written exactly how to do it and uh, yeah, I could just go straight into getting them all done and color schemes were all set up for me. So I just, yeah. I'm impressed that you've written stuff that you wrote the color schemes down because I generally forget, make it up and... Every model in my army is based differently because I forgot what color I used. It's an interesting one. We could almost do a whole topic on writing down painting formulas as well because I know that my experience is I've tried it before and then I either lose the piece of paper that I wrote it down on or cover it in paint by accident. Or lose the paint. Or lose the paint or just don't care because I was sometimes... Like, I don't mind the natural variation. So a lot of times I just say, yeah, that's close enough and go for it. Yeah. And, and if you're doing a few models at a time, it actually works with the variation. Yeah. Now... I'm going to say straight out, the improvement from your start dwarves to the finished dwarves have been really, really amazing. And you've gone from being probably what we'd be calling a good amateur painter, probably one of the better, be- I know beginner's probably not the word because you've been painting for a while, but yeah, an amateur to one of the, the better painters in our scene. And, and have you won any painting awards recently with them? Yeah, so the Warthorn that I was aiming for, that I actually got the best painted army in that. So that was like my goal to get them all done by then and hopefully win something then I managed to do it. So I think it all paid off in the end. Yeah, that's an impressive feat to, to go from having an army done to a good standard, to lose it totally, to get the whole army together in a short time, and then to to win a best painted against really tough competition. There were yeah. some nice painted armies there. there. Is very impressive. So I think with your permission, we might get some photos of your army and put them up on our Green Dragon page yeah. um, with this episode. That would be really good. That sounds good. Yeah, most definitely. Okay, now, before we go on this, and we've probably got this topic rounded up, you've finished your dwarves, or have you? And what are your plans for the future? I want to hear about that. So, I have not finished my dwarves. I don't think I ever will, because I've also started converting a lot of them. So, I really like the shields of the old dwarves. A nice blank canvas for me to do lots of different patterns, or wood textures, or even just scratches in. So... I'm thinking of converting the old Durin's Folk standard dwarf warriors to have spears of the new Erebor dwarves, putting the new Erebor dwarves' helmets on the old, and sort of having a mix between the two, using them as Erebor dwarves. Brilliant. Now, 
What's your favourite uh, sort of location of the dwarves or scenes with the dwarves? Or I'm trying to find out which scenarios you'd like to play. <laughs> Uh, I think probably Kazadun would be my favourite. Maybe Erebor now that I've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, probably Kazadun. That's all Kazadun. Just something about mines and all those sort of things. Have you it's... played through the old Shadow and Flame scenarios at all? No, I haven't. I haven't played through the old ones. Okay, I can see the traffic yeah. closing. Travis and I are looking I at each other. I think we've got the same uh, idea in our heads at the moment. Okay, so what we need, Mason... Have yes. a look through the old Kazadoom book. Do you have a Kazadoom or Shadow and Flame? Shadow and Flame. Shadow, Shadow and Flame. Flame. One of the There's two. four scenarios in a row. Yep. Tell me which dwarves you have. Tell me which dwarves you're missing, and we'll add that in. And then you need to put together the dwarves for that. We'll put together the terrain and the goblins. And then next time we get you on, we'll uh, we'll do some scenario, scenario spotlights. Spot. I think. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. That sounds really. Good. I like the idea of yeah. that. Yeah. Live planning. Cool. There you go. How exciting, <laughs> listener. <laughs> I do have one question for you though, Mason. In a perfect world, if you got your other dwarves back, what would you do with them? Yes, that's been asked before to me. Good uh, question. I really don't know. I'm almost embarrassed by the paint jobs now. Because I practiced on them, they're not the same. So I couldn't mix them into my new dwarves. Although they have the same color scheme because I was also doing non-metallic metal. I, don't, I really don't know. I haven't thought about what I'd do with them yet. So it's back to your old gamer's problem of I have all these painted models that I don't like anymore because I painted them ages ago and I wouldn't use them. I think I would have to keep them on the shelf as my display doors and use my new ones as my gaming doors. That seems backwards because you normally (laughs) display your good paint jobs. No, play with the good paint ones. I like that idea. Then why display the bad painted ones? Because you're going to get dust on the display ones. You might as well get dust on the old ones. Yeah, fair enough. I think you'll be surprised how quick it is to give them a quick touch-up. So I would imagine that my prediction is if it did happen, you'd probably just touch them up and end up playing a massive scenario or army yeah. with that. I think I think Trav, Danny and I have all been the stages where we've repainted an army that we've had. And yep. it's it's actually one of the better ways to, to get your models up to standard because you've done most of the work. The base coding, the preparation yep. is most of the work. And the longest and part about it. painting a model is that base coding, the first wash, yep. the the dry brushing of the base and that's the True. long bit the quick bits of the top highlights and stuff and you're already at the top highlight stage so it's surprising how much just a wash and then re-highlighting everything does yeah, yeah. especially yeah. with the new washes as well yeah. them yeah. things are amazing yeah absolutely okay well is there anything else we want to add to that before we move on to our non-metallic metal discussion just a shout out to Lexi for funding all my new dwarves <laughs> oh that's very impressive yep <laughs> thank you Lexi on. Mason's girlfriend thank you Hashtag man crush. <laughs> Let's not get into that. I felt we would get scorned by Lexi if that wasn't mentioned. Probably. Okay, now we are back with our non-metallic metal discussion after that nice musical interlude there. We have the ideal amount of hosts for this non-metallic metal because myself, Danny, and Mason all use non-metallic metal currently. Travis is one who's been exposed to it for a long time because you've played against it for the longest time. Travis? Yeah, I had the fortunate gaming upbringing of being exposed to a lot of Jeremy's painting styles and uh, playing against his miniatures a lot uh, when we were playing scenarios and stuff. And one thing I noticed was I started to try and copy his paint jobs. 
Little did it, I know that it would take me six years to work out I can't paint like Jeremy and I shouldn't try and paint like Jeremy. Smart choice. I'm still trying to work that one out there. So um, I, I used to paint in non-metallics and I got nowhere near as good a job or as good a finish as the other three gentlemen here at the table did. So I stopped using it and I started using just straight up metallics and realized I didn't paint good metallic either. So I combined the two and made my bastardized hybrid version that uh, people will see from me these days. Mm. Okay, so for our non-metallic metal discussion, we're going to ha- talk about what it is first because we use the acronym a lot around our scene, but it might not be known particularly around the world. We're also going to talk about why you'd use this technique, which is an interesting one. And then we're going to go into some bad techniques, so where, where it goes wrong. And also some good techniques where it goes right. Danny's smiling because he's got the bad techniques down pat. And Likewise, then I'm sharing that one with you, brother. We'll finish it up with those ones. They'll take quite a bit for our discussion. Uh, but first of all, before we start those, I just want to say that we are not placing a value judgment on people who paint non-metallic over metallic metals. They're both really hard to get right. They both look amazing when they're done well. It's totally a personal preference. So the fact that we've got a bunch of us on talking about non-metallic metals, we're not saying it's superior. We're not saying it's better. It's just our personal preferences. And we could equally do a metallic show as well. We've got enough people painting in metallics. Yeah. yeah. Right. (laughs) So, Danny, what is non-metallic metal? Well, it's where you paint metal without metallic paints. So you use, say, greys or browns and highlight up from black to white and try and represent the lighting and reflection that you see on a metal item but without using metallic paints. Have you heard of the term sky earth non-metallic metal? Yes. Mason, do you want to go mm. into that one? I don't want to get it wrong, but wait, I don't know if I should. I don't want to like say the wrong Have thing. Have a go at it and I'll edit it out if it's wrong. Is it to do with chrome? How you would paint something as in the earth and the sky would be reflecting on the model? Yes, like absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's basically, sure. from what I'm aware, two kinds of non-metallic metal. There's the non-metallic metal where you just include the colours that are in the actual metal. Yeah. So if you're painting a silver, you include greys and whites and blacks. If you're painting a gold, you include the browns and yellows and sort of silvers and those colours that are inherent in a gold, maybe a little bit of green in there. Whereas Sky Earth non-metallic metal, you paint the reflection of what's going on in the, the actual model. So the parts that will reflect the sky get a bit of a blue tinge to them and the parts that will reflect the ground get a brown tinge to them. And you get this quite exaggerated technique where it brings a reflection in because that's what a shiny metallic would do in real life it would reflect the area around it now the problem with the miniature is they're not always with the sky they're not always with the ground so you get this interesting one where your cave dwelling goblins or dwarves have got the sky blue sky nice shining on them and some brown earth when they're on gray earth so it's a bit of a suspension of disbelief one but it's it's a technique we probably won't talk about a lot, the Sky Earth, because I don't think anyone here does that. No. no. I've no. attempted it and it failed. But basically, <laughs> it's, it's similar techniques with the non-metallics we're going to mention, but with browns and blues added in. So blues when the sky reflection, browns with the earth reflection. And I don't think you have too much shiny metal in the Lord of the Rings. Like maybe yeah. Minas Tirith or some high elves or something could get it. So it's not as applicable for what we do, I think. Yeah. So that's what non-metallic metal is. As Danny said, very simply, painting metal, which doesn't have the reflective qualities on the miniature because you don't have little metallic fragments in your paint. Painting it as if it were reflecting the outside so it looks like metal. So it's all about putting your light sources there. Now, why would you do non-metallic metal, Mason? 
I would say non-metallic metal is nicer to look at. You can make out details better on edges where the metallic paints would create the light sources for you. So as you twist the model, the light source would change and it's harder to make out certain details. Um, Whereas, you can work with that if you're really good at your metallics, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so if you just do the basic base coat and then the wash and then so on. Yeah, it's hard to make out certain details. Uh, I would say swords are quite fun to get the light source right because depending on the angle of the sword, you have half the sword really dark, half the sword really light. Yeah, we'll talk about swords because we actually do a little bit different the swords. That's the main difference in our yeah. non-metallic metals. So we'll talk about that in good and bad techniques and different techniques, I you guess. Might, oh, sorry. I, just saying one more thing. You might also see non-metallic metal written as NMM for short. Mm. And a lot of people ask, what does that stand for? So that's just... It stands for non-metallic metal, yeah. yes. And if you ever see one of Mason's posts on a Facebook page or in a forum, it will almost always have the three letters NMM. Not M&M the singer, not M&M the candy, but NMM. I had to use that joke. I love that joke. <laughs> Just so long as you don't put any cheesy Eminem music on over the top of this. It already happened. Didn't you hear it at the last break? Sigh. Danny, why do you use non-metallic metal? Uh, Multiple reasons. One, I I was hobby-wise, I've hung around with Jeremy way too much. And as such, I've kind of copied a lot of his styles and paint jobs and sort of hacked and slashed them as I see fit. And since he uses non-metallic metal, I've sort of aspired to sort of get my metals looking better and... When the other competition was generally dry brush, you know, chain mail, Jeremy's models look better, so I sort of directed my painting efforts to that. Other reasons I prefer them is the pigment. Generally, say, golds have really terrible pigment. I don't know, all the gold paints I use is even worse than paint than red. But brown has really good pigment normally, so it's much easier to get a good result, I find, without multiple, like ridiculous amounts of layers and coats when using non-metallic metal. And also, I don't change my water in the my you know brush washing pot anywhere near enough, and as such, I don't want the small metal flecks in my water because then that might pollute the other colours. It's interesting, that one, the, just the practical side of not polluting your pot. Travis, you're probably the most impartial about this. Um, mm. Why do you think people choose non-metallic metal over metallic metal? You've seen lots of armies by lots of people. You've seen lots of good and bad. I think people are just really set in their ways. I think people look at it and go, that's not metal, that's not that's not right. And I think they, they don't look at it as an artistic point. They just look at it as a realistic point. And it's probably a little do to do, my opinion of this is a bit to do with our gaming club being um, quite a lot of our members are into historical gaming as well. So you see a lot of Napoleonics and stuff like that. The way they see it is from a realistic standpoint. And, you know, I've met other gamers as well and their views seem to be very similar as well. It's, it doesn't look right. I think this is a bit of a cop-out at some points, people saying that non-metallic looks doesn't look right because if you paint it well, it can look just like metal. Would it just it doesn't look like it's high reflective like the, the standard metallic colours you would normally come. Interesting, up. you mentioned that. I think both Mason, Danny, and oh, all Mason, Danny, and I have all had times when people looked at our models and asked us what metallic paint we used on them, and that's when you know you've done it right. <laughs> when they say, "Did you use?" I don't know what the silvers are called because I don't use them, but yeah. but shiny silver or glittering gold or whatever the colours are called. And, and you go, no, I use grey. <laughs> uh, another advantage of non-metallic metal is, say if you're painting grey, what do you need? Black and white. You don't need to worry about the mixes. Cause you just mix them, the rest. Because I'm kind of lazy and can't be bothered finding another grey. So I can I just mix grey. it really easy. 
Normally, when I paint grey, I use black and white as well. So no, like, but I just go straight for that. I can't be bothered trying to find shiny gold, burnish, you know, chain mail, <laughs> oh, metal, mithril, yeah, silver. Yeah. I can just work from the two really easily. Well, on that also, you can you've got a lot more colours you can add into it. So you can put in your greens, your yellows, your browns, all those sort of colours that might mix okay with metallics. But whenever you mix a non-metallic with a metallic, it dilutes the metallic nature of it. So you're sort Travis. of doing a yeah, you're doing a medium technique halfway between the two. And funnily enough, that's the technique I use now for a lot of my paint jobs on my metal is mostly on the swords and the spear tips and stuff like that. A little bit on the chainmail and the armor is I'll mix metallic. I'll use the the higher end, like the high, the brighter metallics closer to white. And then I'll mix white into that final sort of bright silver or bright gold mm. and bring it, just bring the edge off a bit because I've always struggled highlighting the edges. But when you use a non-metallic edge, it's much easier to bring it up and bring it out. And it's the style I got. Yes, it does make my models look a little bit more cartoony than otherwise, but that's my painting style. I don't paint for a realistic style. I paint for a cartoony style. Mm. That's the sort of style I paint and the way I do metallics reflects that. Now, I want to just, before we move on to some bad techniques, I want to talk about how I started non-metallic metals because that's probably started it before most people here. Um, basically, I was painting, sort of came across a technique on my own and I used to varnish my models to protect them for gaming. And at the time, the varnishes that I used tend to cloud the model a bit. They dulled it down, they were nice and thick, so they took the brightness off the models and they killed the metallics. It started off like that. Every time I would paint a metallic, I would get really annoyed because the varnish would kill it and then it wouldn't be reflecting. And the other times I would put the model down and get annoyed that the reflection wasn't where I wanted it to be because you're essentially totally controlled by the light source. Danny and Trav know that we've played in the dark hall a lot of times for our games yeah. and it's a bit frustrating to not be able to see the metals. They just turn out looking dark, black, grey, dead. dead. And you get the faces nice and bright, you get the clothes nice and bright and then this dead metal. And I thought that was a bit backwards. So I, I started experimenting using greys mainly for silvers. And then it found that I could get the look that I wanted with the metals and control where the highlights were by putting it down. And probably just after I started, I started frequenting internet forums and found that this was a technique that was used. And it was probably starting just at the right time. So I played around with that. Uh, my first attempts were pretty average. I, had, um, I did some dwarves and I n- never quite went up fully to white. So they had still quite a dull look on them. Um, I had some Eastlings as well, which the gold wasn't quite right. And I've had to go back and refine my technique quite a bit over many years. And I think a lot of people have tried it, have had similar problems with that. So that was my story there. I found that I got a lot of resistance against it at the start. Like I used to get people who who would get angry about me painting non-metallics. And I'll get into sort of very heated discussions where people tell me that I was wrong and that... You had to paint them with metals. And I would say, well, 2D artists don't use metallic paints. Well, they could, but why do I have to use metallic paints? And and this discussion was, was there. Since it's become very popular with the Golden Demon entries or painting competition entries or other means, it's you don't get that anymore. You just People assume that it's another one. At the time when I started, people had never seen a whole army in non-metallic metals. It was the one you did for the character because it takes a little bit more time. So it was a character centerpiece and then everything else was metals or a mixture on the same model. So I sort of surprised a lot of people. I had a non-metallic orc army, non-metallic dwarf army. and Yeah, as well with the non-metallics. I know a lot of people started to paint, especially with 40K, but they started to paint their, their weaponry in the off color. 
in an off color, like painting blue armor or green armor and saying they've painted over it to sort of an excuse to not paint metal, but not paint non-metallic metal either. Like a lacquered armor yeah. sort of color. Yes. And I know that um, was people dodging the non-metallic argument because they were sick of having the non-metallic argument. Yeah, I did that with my Galadrum. I had them with green armor and that was partly because I wanted to be metallic, but I never got any argument with that one because it's a lacquered green armor. So it's, yeah, that's a nice way of getting yes. out of it. It's funny how, funny how people get offended by... Your choices in paints. Have you guys ever come across that, Mason or Danny? No, because I pretty much started it in the last year. Everyone's used to it now, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, the first time I ever saw it was actually Danny's Army in the first Simulili tournament back in 2012. Was that Condor? Or? No, it was the Rivendell Knights. Oh. Yeah, you, you had like a gold sort of yellowy color to them. Yeah. And they, I was they like... They a tiny bit of work, but yeah. And I was like, how did you make that colour? And then you just said it was with yellows. And I was like, wait, but it's gold. I, I got How no idea work? how I made that colour. <laughs> yeah, so that's... <laughs> the advantages of a mixing palette. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to have to paint more because I'm not quite sure I'll be able to get anything the same. Okay, now, so if our listener is inspired by our stories and wants to try out non-metallic metal, can we go through the things that they should watch out for and the techniques that would give a bad result? Because I know that we've all found that ourselves... Dry brushing. Dry brushing. Yes. It's not an appropriate technique generally for metals, non-metallic metals, because you're trying to get crisp sort of highlights. And where dry brushing is great for fur or cloth, it doesn't look quite right. It sort of makes it look maybe a bit dirty. and. Yeah, you want the sharp edges, don't yeah. you? Yeah, chain mail, well, you can get away with, but yeah, yeah. sometimes. Chain mail is its own category. Almost. Yeah, but in terms of like plate mail or armour or edging... Yeah, no, it's the same, same with stay away from the old dry brushing. Yeah, it's the same with hair. You don't want to dry brush hair. People think that because it's like grooved that you can just brush over it once and it'll look good, but it can come off very dirty sometimes. I've got to learn how to paint hair. Anyway, different topic. topic. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that, that's fine. And it's, it's one where you can't take the shortcuts in your technique. You've got to make sure that you take your time to do it right. So dry brushing, I often find, is to save time. Yeah. Even for things like fur and, and terrain and things, you get a good result, but oftentimes it's there to save time. You're not doing non-metallic metal to save time. So you're using that to make sure you get a nice technique that really stands out. It looks great in photos, especially, because you control where the reflections are. Uh, it looks great as a 2D thing. It looks great from far away in a tournament, so oftentimes you can attract people to your army because it looks good from far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to get it to look good from close, you, you can't take the shortcut of dry brush. Mason, next bad technique. Uh, I would say when it comes to silver, really watch out for the, the greys, like the medium sort of tones of the greys. It can come off looking like your model is actually grey. You really have to get the highlights, like the darks and the brightness of it. Contrast. Yeah, you really got to get the contrast close to each other. So like on the edge of a sword, go from a dark grey to a light grey very quickly. Although it does actually matter which angle the sword is at the sword's flat you can get that nice medium color but on angles it can yeah make it look like it's just actually gray absolutely and we'll talk about that in the good techniques as well the contrast because that's a really good point there just out of curiosity do you mix your grays of any other color or do you just keep them out of the pot i don't really do silver that much i really try to avoid non-metallic silver because i just hate trying to do it and then screwing it up so many times that's really interesting i find i really enjoy the non-metallic silver um i often mix my grays with either a little bit of brown if i want them to be a bit dirty a little bit of orange or red if i want to be a little bit rusty or damaged blue can also also look nice sometimes blue looks really yeah. good especially for like a gondor or yeah. for, for one of those a little bit of blue only a tiny bit so we're talking about a very small amount but i think that's a, a good one there 
Travis, your bad technique. Well, I was going to use the one that Mason Sorry. used with the uh, lights and darks, and now I have to think of something else. Totally ignoring the show notes again. I have found, because you're using greys and whites, if you get a bit too aggressive with watering down your paints, can really bugger you up because it can create watermarks. And the one thing you don't want to get is a watermark across your nicely blended Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about almost like a glazing effect where you're putting the paints across watered down. Mm. But if you don't control where that goes, it can really throw off your yeah. reflections and your metallics. And my bad technique then, dun, 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 is watch out for separating the different textures. So I find that people who do metallics right next to, say, cloth and then don't separate them with a dark, like almost a line, you get this blending that doesn't quite work. So I'm finished. Yeah, it so doesn't. So you've base coated it? Yeah. So my recommendation there for, well, it's bad techniques, but make sure that you've got a dark shade or something to differentiate between your cloth and your metals because you're trying to create the illusion that it's metal. If it blends with the cloth, it doesn't look like metal at all. So I think that's one thing where people sometimes fall awry. Now, the exciting part is good techniques. How do you do metallic? Well, we all do it slightly differently, but give an instruction, a guide about how you do it. Choose a color and then go for it. So let's have Mason first. My favorite color at the moment is copper, to do copper non-metallic metal, because I've not really ever seen it before. There's not many guides on the internet of how to do it, and there's no actual color scheme for it. You really have to think it up by yourself. Uh, I even went to the Melbourne National Art Gallery in the city and looked at all the old paintings of metals that were done by, I think they use acrylics, or I'm not sure what type of paints they use, but yeah, you really get an idea of how the professionals get non-metallic metal, because olden day painters don't have metallic paint. So they really have to use the browns and the yellows. I would say a good technique is to look at other people's ways that they paint it. Like That's Danny's technique. It's just the... Uh Copy other people. <laughs> yeah, which is a, a good technique. I make lots of fun of it because Danny copies everyone. It's, also, it, one yeah. more thing I'll just quickly say. Um, taking a photo of an actual object that is the colour that you want to get, taking a photo and then zooming in really close to each different colour and seeing what the actual colour is. If I don't know, you got like a spoon and then zoomed right in on where the grey is or where the really dark area is and then finding that exact colour and then using them. That's a really good idea. I like that. I haven't done that one, but that's easy to do now with the technology you have. Yeah. yeah. If I had a phone camera when I started out, I would have done that. That would have been amazing. <laughs> Danny? Well, let's say steel. If I, if I was going to paint, say, my Minister of Warriors, I'd start with, say, a mid a mid grey, and then I'd wash it with, say, a black wash, and then I'd highlight up to white, ideally. I never used to highlight up to white that much, and you can really tell the difference. The contrast is really, really important with um, steel and stuff. So I, I do like a wash because it's sort of, Almost you can cheat and say you can see where the highlights should be to a degree and then you work out the lighting from there. But um, I like using washes a lot and then highlighting up from there. Uh, we'll talk about the washes very soon. Um, the basic techniques, I'll mention my basic technique and then we'll go into things like washing and finishing and, and even varnishing and those sort of ideas. Basically, I start with a low mid-tone when I'm doing the, the non-metallics. I don't worry about being neat at this stage. So I'll get, if it's say a silver or if it's, a gold, I'll start with either a grey or a brown. I usually try and make them what I call a complex colour. So I grab the paint and I'll mix a little bit of brown in or a little bit of green or a little bit of something in there just to throw it off to, to make it unusual. If it's evil, it will be probably something that clashes. If it's good, it'll be something that supports it. Then I go straight to the highlighting. So I'll highlight up, I'll mix that on my wet palette. I'll mix it up and then I'll add a little bit of white each time. Sometimes I don't add white to the last stage. I might add an off-white, a 
a khaki or a like a, an off grey or something. Beach bone or a yeah, whatever they're called now. Yep, anything lighter. Sometimes even flesh colours and things I, I'll add in or yellows or beiges are really good. I like like adding beiges if I want it to be sort of like a sun effect. Then I'll highlight up and at the very edges I'll hit it with the white. Now I try not to make my white line go for an entire line. I'll do it for a little bit and then have it dark for a little bit, then light for a little bit, just to break up the the reflections. Sometimes you can do too many where everything gets highlighted, so you've got to break it up. Yeah. And then I'll go back and do a black line next to all the white. So make sure that I've got that contrast. And it doesn't matter what color I'm doing. The black line always goes next to the white, and that sort of gives the effect that this is popping and then it's immediately going black. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's a good idea too. That's yeah, and that's, I think, really taken my non-metallics from the stage where it was a decent technique to being a really solid technique. And I had to go back over my Easterlings and do that, highlight them all up to white, bring it down to black, even though they had gold armor the whole time. So that was a tricky one. I've recently done black armor, which is interesting one as well. Is that and the Gundabad Orcs? That's my Gundabad yeah. Orcs. And it's essentially keep the tones really dark and complex. So lots of grays, lots of browns mixed in, a dark tone. And then it highlights all the way up to white. So highlighting black with white is a real tricky one. So the grays are only a very small amount. Then it goes up to the white and it almost immediately drops back down to the black. And I do a lot of glazing on those, which I'll talk about very soon. Trav, do you have anything to add? Uh, no, as part of the reason why I have uh, backed off a bit at the moment, as you might have heard at the start, the reason why I stopped painting in non-metallic was because I was terrible at it. So uh, mid-grey with a light grey highlight, say, with a codex grey and then a fortress grey, and that was it. Yeah, I, there were a lot of reasons, like, I didn't do enough steps, and I'm sort of one of those painters that can't take the time to put into them because I try and smash armies out for tournaments and stuff, so my turnarounds aren't as long. In fairness, I smash armies out as well. I know Mason does. Yes, it's, but no I, one no one can paint at the warp speed that you do, Jeremy. Uh, I think Mason would compete with me. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about any other techniques we use, glazing, washing, uh, any of that. Do you guys add that to your non-metallic metals? Yeah, I use the varnish. You can use it two ways with... Does anyone know what the actual name is? It's got a weird sort of silent H, maybe. La- uh, Lam- Lamian. Lamian, yep. is that it? Yeah. Yeah, I use Lamian medium for both blending and for the finish. It works as a varnish, so it'll protect the model, but it also contrasts really well. So if you have, say a dark gray and a really light gray and it might sort of blend a a bit when you've painted it but then when you put that over the top of it it'll just turn the dark gray really dark and the light gray really light and it'll give that really good contrast so i almost cover the entire model in this medium at the very end i'll give that a shot when i yeah yeah that's i second that that's what i do now for almost every model i don't even bother varnishing with spray varnish anymore i usually hit it with that lamy medium and Mm. then maybe another bottle varnish from a different company but it really does blend your colours together nicely. And I find it doesn't kill your, your whites. Like, it darkens them very slightly. And yeah. sometimes you have to re-highlight them. But it's just such a nice blend. Don't let it pull. Have yes. you ever pulled it, Mason? No, I've yeah, I've heard of it making it go cloudy sometimes. It goes a cloudy white colour. So you put yep. it on too thick if it goes that colour. Spread it out. Yes. So don't be afraid to get the brush and really push it around. And if you don't want to push it around and you think you've actually overdone it and you don't want to spread it around, though, if you dry out your brush, you can almost, like... Get, use it as a sponge and absorb it back out of the model and like get it back onto your brush and then just wash it away. Yep, so, absolutely. Yeah. I've actually made a mistake and spilled um, like a wash on my models as well and I found that I just dunk it straight in the water pot, shake it around and pull it out and it actually does reasonably well. It's only a couple touch-ups. Yeah. 
because it takes a little while to dry those ones. Yeah, so the Lamia Medium, for those who don't know, is essentially a pigmentless paint. So it's it's really nice in that it's got the thickness of the paint, but it doesn't have the pigment. So you get this part that's pulling out some of the reflections. It darkens a little bit, but it blends your highlights really nicely. Danny, do you use any washes or glazes or techniques? I generally use washes for my shading, and then I'll black line where appropriate. And then generally if I think I've over-highlighted a metal, I use washes to bring it back down, and then I can neaten it. Of course, they're very good if you accidentally get into, say, crevices or grooves that you're not meant to on the armour with your highlights. They'll really save bad paint jobs. It's the best way to rescue a paint job, isn't it? Just to black line it, and then it it looks good. (laughs) Wash it, black line it, and Mm. you're halfway there. That's a good general painting technique. I've been experimenting with glazes of late, and basically, similar to Mason's Lamium Medium technique, I get the Lamium Medium, and I'll mix a little bit of a shade, like a, um, a sepia or a, it's a brown one, earth yeah. shade. Uh, yep. uh, yeah. Even a little bit of a, a standard paint, just a very small amount, and then I'll hit the whole model or a panel on it, and sort of do a little cheaty sky earth one, where I'll hit at the bottom parts just with a little bit of brown, mm. and I find that it adds just a little bit of depth I jokingly say it's 50 extra layers for like 1% difference because it doesn't make a huge difference, but it is enough that it really makes it look like I've put heaps of work in and it's dead easy to do. You just mix your paint and just slop it on. So it's it's easy to do, but it gives a lot of good results. Sometimes you have to repaint the white though because if your white goes yellow, it doesn't work. Yeah. You do have to watch out for the washes though because sometimes if you don't shake the pot enough, it can go on really shiny and it'll dry shiny. And I've had my entire Pulse Guard warband come out wet. <laughs> it just looks like they're wet. The other thing it does sometimes, you get those, it dries with little white flakes. So you put it on yeah. and you get white areas in your yeah. pooling. Have so if you do that. that with your washing... Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it not a good idea to shake washes? It's better to stir them. Oh, I've always Is just that a myth that I've heard? Oh. It gets bubbles in them if you shake them. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I just make sure there's no bubbles. Yeah, so that's, you, you don't want dryable bubbles because bubbles will give you a change in colour where you'll see the bubble. So as long as you can avoid that, yeah. you're fine. But stirring is a good idea. I would do both. If you're really going there, I'll shake it first to dislodge all the stuff at the bottom and then give it a stir at the end to calm it down and let the bubbles get out. But you've got to make sure you don't accidentally dislodge dried paint on your bottom of your pot or something somehow because then you'll get bits in your wash. Especially if you're reusing pots, where some of us do for um, like making our own glazes. We'll use old pots for that. Like I love using the shade pots for that and occasionally you will get a little bit of dried paint in there and, and have to... Yeah, but I get pretty good at washing them out. I've got an old toothbrush that I used to scrub them. Right, now, anything else you want to add to non-metallic metals? I feel like once you've finally finished the actual model and everything's done, there's a few extra little things that you can add to it, like sometimes rust or even um, patina for copper. You can add that sort of teal color to it. Or like a verdigris for a... um like a brass yeah 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 I, I like to do that on pretty much all my copper just gives that extra bit of the actually being in the battle not yeah that's a great idea a really good thing about non-metallic metal is even if when you get decent at it there's just so much more you can do you can always improve and you can always just see like hey that guy's much better and there's so many new techniques and stuff to try in it like say trying copper or trying sky earth highlights and it's just it opens up lots of places where you can obviously see where you can improve and try new techniques yeah i've been doing some non um sorry some freehand on my metals as well just to really give them that edge and it looks really good i think it comes out quite well and it can break it up and give you an extra texture yeah i've been doing freehands on the shields you do like a gash in them by doing a a white a white line and then a black line so you do the white on the bottom 
and the black on the top so that the light would be hitting the bottom of the gash where it would be sort of sticking out. I mean, yeah, that, that's a great in. way of doing it. You've got to make sure that the, um, the white's at the bottom, the black's at the top. Yes. But people get this wrong. And I know you just said that, but I wanted to repeat that because it looks weird if you do it the other yeah. way. It looks inside out, but it looks amazing. That's so easy. And can cover up mistakes too. Oh, yes. Yes. Yep. I've done that before. Uh, yeah. The way I saw it was on the iPod screen of a iPhone or whatever. The little dial at the bottom where you turn it left and right to make the volume go up and down. Yeah, you can actually see it. They've highlighted the bottom of it and then the dark is at the top. And that's how I saw that it gave that 3D depth. Of, if you actually look at it when you like make the volume go up and down, you can see it. And that, that's how I figured out how to get the highlights. <laughs> that's really clever. I like that. But I'm totally not doing that Travis right now. Travis out his phone now. So if you're hearing a funny beep in the recording, that's Trav. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me see if it's with a new update, though. You never know. They could okay. Well, we might um, we might close it down there, but that's some really good advice for our non-metallic metal discussion. Thank you so much, Mason, for coming on and telling us your story and also about the non-metallic metals. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Travis. I've been Jeremy. And as always, traps win games. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on thegreendragonpodcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.